You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Exodus chapter 16 is where we are as we're working our way through the book of Exodus, the way out. Exodus 16, we'll work our way to chapter 17, verse 7. Desert adversities is what we're talking about here this weekend. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along in the book of Exodus. We are learning that redemption is liberation. So the whole book is about redemption, and redemption means liberation. God intervenes in our lives to liberate us from the things that we build our lives on more than him. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and that's what we tend to do. We tend to build our lives on anything and everything other than God. And so God liberates, intervenes in our lives to liberate us from the things that we build our lives on more than him that will enslave us and eventually devastate us, those things that we build, on our, our, build our lives on other than him. And so there's three ways that God liberates us. You can see there on your notes, uh, the, the theological terms are right there in parentheses there. Uh, so God liberates us from the penalty of sin. That's the first thing he does. And that's called justification. So he, de- he declares us we're righteous. It's, it's a moment when we put our faith in Christ Jesus and we have an immediate status change. We're in right relationship with God. And then he continues that work with setting us free from the power of sin, that's sanctification. So the first one is an uh, imputed righteousness. This is an imparted righteousness or a practical righteousness. He begins to reshape our lives and and put our lives together and bring about a wholeness and a a Christ-likeness. And then, of course, the third way that he liberates us, he liberates us from the presence of sin. It's, It's called glorification. That's when we're with him for all eternity. So those are the three ways that he liberates our lives. Take a look at the next uh, thought on your notes. You can get people out of slavery in an instant. That's justification, but you can't get the slavery out of the people except through a long process. That's sanctification. And how how does God do that? Well, that's the storyline that we're in right now. Uh, The nation of Israel has been released from Egyptian bondage. And they've gone through the Red Sea, which depicts our justification. It's a picture of our justification. So he set them free from that, but now he's got to set them free from that slavery that's within them. But, but you can't get the slavery out of the people except through a long process, sanctification. And how does God do that? Desert adversities. Yes. That's phenomenal, yeah. And why do we need that? Why do we need hard times to help us to work the truths that we believe about Christ deeper into our hearts? Let me give you just a quick illustration of what this might look like. If someone as loving and wise and powerful as God loves me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, promised to never leave me or forsake me, if that's all true, why would I ever, ever be envious, anxious, bitter, discontent, or feel hopeless? Why? why? Why would that ever be a part of my life? Because I know it intellectually in my head, but not experientially in my heart. So objectively, I've been set, I've been set free. I have right relationship with God. But I've got to learn how to live that out in every specific area of my life. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? So, so I, I might have justification, and uh, it's, it's a legal fact. I'm in right relationship with God, but I often forget that as I'm living it out throughout the day. I mean, I could give you a ton of uh, 
examples of this, but I mean, someone says something that's really mean to you, and you put more weight on what they said to you than what God has already said about you being a child of God lavished with his love. Does that make sense? And so what I've got to do is take that reality of the fact, as it says in 1 John 3, 1, that how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I've got to learn how to live that out in all the details of my life. It's called sanctification. Of course, the best way for us to do that is through desert adversities. That's what God uses in our life. So desert adversities show us God's redeeming process, provision, and patience. Those are the three big ideas we'll work through in our notes here this morning. Let's first of all pray before we um, read through the text and unpack these notes. God, we're delighted to be here today. We love your presence. You have completed the work of our justification that by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we are declared righteous before you, made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. And you have begun the work of our sanctification, which is our gradual growing righteousness. We trust that you will carry us through to its completion. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us, teach us your redeeming, your liberating process, provision, in patience, transforming us day by day into your likeness, conforming us to your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. So let me, let's read through the text here, and you can follow along. We're going to read uh, most of chapter 16 and then uh, seven verses of chapter 17. So we'll just kind of walk through it, and then we'll go back to our notes and unpack it, and I'll share with you some things. Let me give you the context here. A couple weeks ago, uh, we finished in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the Song of Moses or the Song of the Redeemed. Remember, God had just set them free from the uh, Egyptians coming after them. They were kind of pinned between the Egyptians who were going to kill them and the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They get across, and then God wipes out uh, this Egyptian army. And uh, so they, are, they celebrated that, the song of the redeemed, as these bodies of the Egyptians were being washed up on the shore. And so they go from celebration to, well, as they're three days on their journey towards the promised land, three days into it, they come to some water that's bitter, and then they begin to grumble, okay? And you're going to see this throughout their travels. They grumble, and so God turns the bitter water, makes it sweet, and then eventually he leads them to a place of refreshment, an oasis uh, place, and that's in verse 27 of chapter 15. And now we pick up the story in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16. And they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they're like uh, a month and a half into the journey now. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what, what's that word there? Grumbled. Grumbled. I know that you've never done that before. But they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? I mean, especially when you realize how they responded initially when Moses and Aaron showed up and said, hey, God's heard your cries. He knows and understands your suffering. He's here to set you free. They go, yeah, 
yes, yay, God, let's do this, let's go, we're ready. And now there's talking like this? What is this about? Now, here's the scary thing about this. As we read this, we're going to go, these people are idiots. (laughs) But if we take a closer look, we are seeing ourselves in a mirror. I was, a number of years ago, I was over here at 17th Avenue Bell Road. This is where we did the old, it was the nightclub that we had converted into our church. It's called Sensations. We didn't keep the name, obviously. And uh, (laughs) it's not a good name for, for a church. Hey, come to our church. It's called Sensations. But, but it, it had a lot of back rooms, and I was going back into a back room back in there, and, uh, and I was trying to find a light switch, and I looked over, and I was like, oh! I was kind of frightened because I saw an image of a person because we had transit. Sometimes it would sneak into the building and hide back in the back building. And so I, I go, oh! I was shocked by it. Flipped on the light, and it was a mirror. <laughs> uh, so as we get frightened by what we're reading here, guess what? You can punch the person next to you. They're talking about you. <laughs> and you too, okay? This is us. This is us. After all that God has done for us, and we, we, we still grumble, we still complain. We'll talk more about it as we work through this. But look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. That's, that's what he's doing. Testing is a revealing of our hearts so that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when you prepare, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. You guys know why? On the sixth day, they're going to gather twice as much because on the seventh day, they don't need to go out because that's the Sabbath. He doesn't want them going out, so they'll have plenty for the Sabbath day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know... Now, this is why God is showing himself through this provision. It's so that they would know. You're going to see that word a couple times in this text, so that they will know. The word know, isn't, uh, it's more than just an in- intellectual know. It's an existential, it's an experiential know. That you'll have an encounter with God through this, because that's our biggest problem. That's their problem, is that they don't know God. All of our problems are rooted in the fact that we don't know God and we, we're not beholding his glory because that's the next word we will see in verse seven. But let me read through this. At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory. Glory means weight, significance, importance. It means the riches of God. Oh my goodness. It, when you see, when you get a glimpse of the glory of God, it's one of those wow moments. It's just like, man, oh my goodness. And he says, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord for what we are, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your, what's that word again? Grumbling. I mean, you see this throughout this text. It's just amazing how often the writer here, Moses, puts this in there. He's he's trying to make a point. And so he says, says, grumbling, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you're grumbling, that you're grumbling against him. What are we that you that you grumble against him? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The point that he's making here is that uh, 
Your grumbling is evidence that you don't trust God's love, wisdom, and power, that he's going to come through for you. He's going to take care of you. That's what he's saying. And then he continues on here. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your, what's that word again? Grumbling, there you go. Okay, you're getting it. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know. There's that word again. Then you shall know. Not just intellectual existential, an experience of God, that I am the Lord, your God. Here, here's the point before we move on. Um, our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with God. Did you know that? So they have a real low, small concept of God. So our concept of God determines not only the quality of our relationship with God, what that means is that how I navigate through the trials and the difficulties of life is based on my concept of God. If I'm not doing very well, it's because I got a small view of God. If I'm over overwhelmed by trials, I got to check out my concept of God. It's not big enough, obviously. If I'm overtaken by temptations in life, it's my concept of God, because this is how it, uh, how it works. That's the reason why he says that you will know that he is, that you will know that I am the Lord your God, that you will know his glory, experience his glory. Grumbling, worry, bitterness, despair, that all happens when the superficiality of, of my theology meets the reality of my life. My theology meaning my, my understanding of who God is, my study of God. So if I have a shallow understanding of God, evidence in my life will be worry and bitterness and anxiety you know, being just maxed out, pegged out, because I need this bigger idea of God, this big concept of God. Verse 13, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given, uh, given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. And you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And this next part is really important because they all individually go out and collect, but then they distribute it throughout uh, the group of people throughout the community. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, what, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. In other words, eat it up but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, 
And Moses was angry with them. And then in verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. What's the point of that? Well, here's the point, and I think it's an important point, is that you can't, uh, you can't live on yesterday's manna. Uh, you can't live on yesterday's spiritual diet. Yeah, but I, I read the Bible a long time ago. Okay, big deal. What about today? And that's what he's saying. You need manna. You need to interact with the living God every day because you're not going to survive. You're not going to survive, and that's the point here. Let me summarize the rest of the chapter. Uh, the rest of the chapter, uh, they go out on the sixth day. They gather twice as much, uh, but on the Sabbath, it actually says so that they would have enough on the Sabbath, but on the Sabbath, it says in verse 27 that some of them go ahead and go out. They disobey God. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So God's, I mean, you're, you're seeing God's patience in all of this. They're still not obeying God. And God points out, you guys are grumblers. He makes that very clear. I, I hear you're grumbling. I'm fully aware of your grumbling, and yet I'm gonna still provide for your needs. I'm gonna still take care of you. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. The, the next part you see in verse 31 where, they, where it gets the name manna, the rest of the chapter, verse 32 to the rest of the chapter, he tells Moses to memorialize this manna, put it in a jar, and then later on when they build the temple, they're gonna put it within the Ark of the Covenant for future generations. And then notice in verse uh, 35, 36, he says, and the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years. So he's gonna continue to provide for them in spite of their grumbling. In spite of all that, and he's going to get them all the way to the promised land. That's an important point. Now, let's continue reading. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled. So it goes from grumbling to quarreling. And this is an interesting word. It's a little bit more of a powerful word. Uh, than grumble, and in fact, the word means to bring a legal charge. Uh, it, it means to summon someone before the bar of justice. Moses, and in fact, God is being accused of criminal negligence, and you're going to see that as we continue to read this out. So they're not just grumbling, they're making an accusation towards God. God, you're, you're the cause of our problems. And so it, it's pretty fascinating, because I've actually heard people say that. I've actually heard people a lot of times just want to blame God. If there's, why is there so much evil and suffering on, on this planet? Because if there was a God, if he was loving whatsoever, and I've seen a lot of people turn away from God in, in the effort of blaming God for all the evil and all the suffering and all the difficulties, and so you got them doing that through quarreling. And so therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? So, so the people have hit their limit. They're totally impatient, making accusations towards God. Now Moses has hit his limit. He's run out of patience. But guess who hasn't run out of patience? God, yeah, you see it right here in the story. And, and the narrative here is absolutely spectacular, what you're going to see. 
And you're going to get a glimpse of our Savior in this as we continue reading. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me because they're feeling, that's what you do with someone that's, uh, that's broken a, a capital you know, uh, law of some sort. You stone them. And that's what they're going to do to him. They're, gonna, they're about ready to kill him. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders uh, of Israel, and take in your hand the staff. Staff represents judicial authority or judgment, because you can see it here, with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, this is the next, this is really a key verse. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. Now, the idea here in that, it's, it's pretty profound. The language, this is the language of an inferior standing before a superior. And God is putting himself as the inferior, as the commoner standing before the king, which we know that he's the king and he's the judge ultimately, but, but we have a beautiful picture of the judge being judged for you and I. You'll see it right here. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, which is the most unlikely place to find water, which is crazy. But we know also, according to 1 Corinthians 10.4, who's the rock? It's Jesus, yeah. Paul says the rock is Jesus. He's going to be struck. What does that represent? The cross. The judge who was judged for you and I. Profound. And water shall come out of it. Let me read that again. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa, means testing, and Meribah, uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord to us. This, this morning, this, this weekend. That's an amazing story. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic. I think it's going to be really helpful for us as we kind of work uh, on this idea of sanctification. So desert adversities show us God's redeeming, liberating. Here's the first uh, fill-in-the-blank on your notes, process. So it's process, and here's your next fill-in-the-blank. So desert adversities, so what do we mean process? God's work in our lives to, to conform our lives more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He's bringing about wholeness or holiness, and uh, it's practical righteousness is what it is. Our lives look more and more like Jesus. And so desert adversities are God's university. That's your next fill in the blank. So part of this process is desert adversities are God's university. Uh, verse two, wilderness, he uses the word wilderness, which is a desert. It's a place where human life can't be sustained. Now, why are they in the desert struggling with a lack of food, Exodus 16, and a lack of water, Exodus 17? Because God has led them there. That's why. And we know that based on Exodus 13, verses 17 through 18. Remember, there was the long path, and then there was the short path. God chose the long path uh, to, the, to the promised land. And the reason why he did that, because it says there in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, lest these people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, why, why would he do that? Why would he say that? Because they desperately need character development. That's why. They need character development. Exodus 15, 24, they grumbled over bitter water. Exodus 16, 2 through 3, they grumbled over no food. Exodus 17, 2 through 3, they quarreled over no water. I mean, it's the language of unbelief, pride, idolatry. 
I mean, think about this. They have been set free from Egyptian bondage, and they've made their way through the Red Sea, and they celebrated only to go right into grumbling, wondering, God, where are you? You've abandoned us. You've brought us out here to kill us? Of course not. But that's typical to our response oftentimes when we go through difficulties, how short our memory is. We forget all that he's done for us and all that he's promised to do for us. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. And, um, and you've heard this many times before. You should have it memorized by now. It's not what happens to us, but what happens in us that either makes us or breaks us in life. It's not what happens to us. It's not our circumstances. It's what happens in us. It's our what? Character. It's our character that either makes us or breaks us in life. God is working through our desert adversities, regulating the size, the order, the timing of them for our good and his glory so that if we respond to them in faith, they'll make us into something glorious and great or if we don't respond in faith, it will cause us to become bitter and broken. The choice is ours. When we respond in faith, when we go through desert adversities, difficulties in our lives, and notice that their grumbling is ultimately against the Lord. All of our grumbling is against him because he's a sovereign God. He's in control. He loves us. He's perfect in love, infinite wisdom, unlimited in his power. He's in control of our lives, and uh, therefore... He's at the bottom of all of our issues and problems, ultimately, in, in, a, in the sense of sovereignty. Imagine a five-year-old girl, and uh, you're the parent, and she has been looking forward all week to going to a sleepover with her friends. And on the night before the sleepover, for the first time in her little life, she does a very big, fat lie you catch her in. And it's very deliberate, very deceptive, really, really bad, really wrong. What do you do? And you say, honey, you're going to have to be disciplined for that lie. You can't go to the sleepover tomorrow. And so she screeches out a blood-curdling scream of despair, and she says, why? Why would you do that to me? Sounds like the nation of Israel, doesn't it? I mean, that's what they're doing, kind of throwing a temper tantrum. And there are a couple of ways to go here as, as her parent. Keep in mind, she's five years old. The one thing you could say is, honey, let me explain something to you. The short-term pain of being deprived from going to this sleepover tomorrow is nothing compared to the long-term pain that will happen in your life if you become a habitual liar. It will destroy friendships, family, community, marriage, loss of job, I mean, just a lot of things. It will be the destruction of a lot of things in your life. You're probably not going to go that route, okay? <laughs> She's not going to understand. She's going to look at you with this blank stare on her face. I don't care. You're being mean to me. That's what she's going to do. She's only five years old. So let's, let's not go that way because she's not going to understand what you're talking about. What you say to her is go to your room. I can't explain it to you. Because to her little mind, this desert adversity that you have inflicted upon her and that she is experiencing unfairly from her perspective is going to help transform her character. That's what you're hoping for. And, and here's the point, is that we are 
considerably further behind the wisdom of God than a five-year-old is behind the wisdom of her parent. And there's going to be a ton of things that we don't understand. God, why? Why is this happening to me? And we can throw a little temper tantrum, and he's going to be patient with us. He loves us, but he's going to continue to work on us and use those difficulties in our life. I love what philosopher Evelyn Underhill said, a God small enough to to be understood will never be big enough to be worshipped. There's so much you're not going to understand about God, but believe me, when you begin to see his glory and you get to know him, I mean, it's going to make a major difference in your life. I was reflecting on that this morning because that's what they needed. That's what the nation of Israel needs. That's what we need. And this is what I wrote down. The more you know him and behold his glory, the more you will be captivated by him, compelled to love and trust him, convinced that he's a God worth living and dying for. Yes. I thought that was really good. Yeah. I mean, as I was reflecting on that as it related to this story, I was going, yeah, I need that. Thanks. And I think there's a lot of folks that need that in here. And so here's the next one. Desert adversities reveal what we most trust and treasure. So we're looking at the process here. This is part of the process. So Exodus 16, 4, that I may test them. That's what he said. He's testing them. Now, if you want some great insight on these desert adversities, wilderness wanderings, all that the nation of Israel went through, you go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second law, and he's kind of summarizing and talking about all of these things and kind of expounding on the Ten Commandments there. And this is where they're standing on the edge of the promised land before they go into the promised land, and this is Moses talking. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he's wanting to humble us, and he's wanting to reveal what's in our hearts so that we will obey him. Desert adversities happen when those things we have built our identity, security, and significance on dry up. I could give you a whole list of things, our job, we lose our job, or a family, or resume, doesn't work out the way we had hoped, or bank account. All are not only shallow water sources, but all will eventually dry up. You've heard this statement before, you don't realize that God is all you need until he's all you have. And, and that's not until we go through, and I had someone just last night, they said, they said, thank you for talking about this because I, I didn't think that I had idolatry in my heart and I didn't think that I had misplaced identity, but when that thing was, came under attack and then I began to lose it, oh my goodness, my emotional response to it was pegged out. And then I realized, oh my goodness, that meant more to me than my relationship with God. And that's, that's oftentimes what happens. Um, as you guys well know, I, I write a lot of things on cards, and I carry a lot of memory verses around with me, and I, it's just really helpful for me, but there's some things I've been reflecting on lately from just books that I've been reading, and, and so let me kind of walk you through this. Uh, as it relates to this, let's just say that we were hanging out at a coffee shop, and you bought me a $10 drink, and uh, <laughs> it's not a bad idea, actually. Uh, <laughs> And I'm kind of helping you to work through your, uh, your desert adversity. And, and so I would share with you something that I've talked a lot about around here, and I talk about it in our game of life, but how a person mentally evaluates an event, how a person mentally evaluates an event determines 
not only how they feel about that event, but also how they're going to behave in response to that event. It's not the event that makes you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. You guys know that. It's your evaluation of it. And so you put on display how you, how you uh, respond, your feelings and your behavior put on display your, the size of your God. How big's your God? And so it gives you opportunity to kind of make some adjustments and, and to take a good look at that. Um, our mental evaluation of an event is determined by what we trust and treasure. And so our mental evaluation of an event is determined by what we trust. And so what we want to do is we want to trust God instead of believing lies. Oftentimes it's lies that we're believing. That we're going to be happier out there somewhere apart from God or pursuing anything more than God. And, and we, we want to treasure God instead of treasuring or worshiping idols. Both, that's called, actually, trusting means faith. Treasuring really is, a, is about repentance. And um, so let me just say it again. Our mental evaluation of an event is determined by, by what we trust. And we need to trust God instead of believing lies, which is faith. And treasure, treasure God instead of treasuring or worshiping idols, which is repentance. Our emotions reveal the things that are most important to us. So here's kind of a chart to try to understand. So when you are happy, we possess something that we love. That makes sense. When we're anxious, something we love is at risk. When we are angry, something we love has been stolen or kept from us or blocked from us. When we're depressed, something we love has been lost. I mean, that's basic, pretty basic stuff. Here's the next one on your notes. Desert adversities are opportunities for me to access the truth I know in my head and work it deep into my heart and out into my life. That's why the Bible tells us in uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So it's not, you don't work for your salvation, you work, you work from your salvation. And so you've been saved, and so God has given you this amazing resources to, to draw upon. He's saying, work that out into the details of your life. The liberation we know in principle in our head is not yet worked out into our lives in the way we feel and behave in response to the desert adversities. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the, the, such negative responses emotionally or behaviorally to the things that are happening in our lives or even in this world in general. Um, and so here's another th comment uh, that I've been kind of working through. Sin arises because we desire something more than we desire God. Overcoming sin begins by reversing this process as desiring God more than other things. So the person that told me that last night about what they were struggling with is that it gave them, they said, man, it gave me opportunity to really begin to worship God. I was worshiping this other thing that had a hold of my heart, and because I worshiped myself into problems, now I've got to worship my way out of that problem by worshiping God first and foremost. I go, that's, that's brilliant. That's exactly it. We are changed by faith as we look upon the glory of God and so find him more desirable than anything sin might offer. By faith and through the spirit of God and the word of God, the desire for God overcomes, overwhelms the desire for sin. 
So that's what God's, that's, that's the process that God is working on. So desert adversity show us God's redeeming process. But so how do we do that? Well, we've got the provision right here. That's your next fill in the blank. Here's the provision. And so the provision is this. The worst circumstances with God are better by far than the best circumstances without him. I've got to be convinced of that. I've got to believe that. And, and that's your next fill in the blank. So the worst circumstances with God are, are better by far than the best circumstances without him. Exodus 16 talks about the bread from heaven. Did you know that that's a picture of, of Christ? Bread from heaven? Yeah, of course. Uh, John 6:35. Jesus said uh, to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I love that verse. That's talking about satisfaction. Total satisfaction. And then, of course, the water from the rock, of course, that represents Jesus and the satisfaction he, he brings. John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, that, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh my goodness, that's good stuff. That is amazing. Now, Here's a, here's a cross-reference here to help us to understand this. Uh, it's Psalm 8410. Anybody know what Psalm 8410 is? I bet if I kind of helped you with this, you could probably know what this verse is. Psalm 8410. Okay, let me, do, do you need help? Okay, here it is. Better is, well, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. Do you guys believe that? Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. What's the best vacation you've ever gone on? Best vacation ever is nothing compared to one, one moment one moment with him, knowing him. In fact, it goes on, it says, I would rather be a, what, a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. In other words, to live in, a, to live in luxury. He called it a tent because it's temporary. But that's what he was talking about there. There is a major difference between, between seeking God for what he can do or seeking him for who he is. It's interesting here because I think there's a good contrast. In the fertile Nile River Valley, it should have been the best circumstances, but it wasn't because of, of the plagues and because of the sin of, of Egypt. But in the barren desert place, it should have been the worst circumstances, but it wasn't because of God's provision. So, so here's the question, I mean, are you seeking God to get from him to change your circumstances or to be with him? There's a major difference between seeking God for what he can do or seeking him for who he is. It's the difference between wanting to get from God, that's the Israelites, or to be with God, that's Moses. Moses trusted and treasured intimacy with God more than better circumstances, and we know that based on Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. It said he left the palace he left the treasures of Egypt for the treasures of God, for what he had in God. We also know that based on Exodus 33, because he even tells God, uh, he says, God, I would rather wander around in the wilderness with your presence than to go into the promised land without your presence. That's what he says. And yet the Israelites trusted and treasured better circumstances more than intimacy with God. Here's the next point on your notes. God's sustenance and sweetness is not automatic. You must be an active participant regularly and consistently. So we're talking about his provision here. 
And so if I want really the worst circumstances with God are better by far than the best circumstances without him. If I want that to be true in my life, God's sustenance and sweetness is not automatic. You must be an active participant regularly and consistently. Exodus 16 verses 4 through 5 he, he promises them, I'm going to rain bread from heaven, verses 19 through 22. Don't leave any for, for the morning. And some did, and it bred worms and stank. So, so what he's saying here, this isn't automatic. You've got to go get the manna according to God's rules. So just as the Israelites could not live on yesterday's manna, you and I cannot live on yesterday's spiritual diet, and we need to go out every day and get the manna. Now, why couldn't it just appear immediately when they were hungry? Why did they have to go out and collect it? Why couldn't they just kind of wake up, rub the sleepy out of their eyes, stretch, say, I'm hungry, God. Boom, it appears right there in their table. I mean, he could have done that. Better yet, I'm hungry. Boom. Oh, I'm, it's in my stomach. I'm already, I'm already full. And then you'd miss out on the pleasure of the taste and all that other stuff. But, but he doesn't do that. Why is that? because he wants them to be an, an active participant in this, in this process. Just as, uh, you know, the first part of their liberation was a gift they received almost passively. So when they were set free from Egyptian bondage, they went through the Red Sea, they were kind of passive in that whole activity. I mean, they had to walk through the Red Sea, they had to get up and pack up their stuff and leave, but they were very passive. But the second part of their liberation, they were active participants. So the first part was justification. There's not much you can do other than put your faith in Jesus. And then you're declared righteous. But imparted righteousness in our life, we've got to be an active participant. And desert adversities will either make you or break you, but they will never leave you the same. And if you want them to make you, you must learn how to go and get the sustenance and sweetness. If you want to be transformed, you've got to learn how to to feed yourself. He's given you the food, and so here's, here's how you do it. Three ways to be an active participant. Here's the first one, taste and ingest God's word. We go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight. He gives us some really good insight, insight here. Moses, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Manna is what here? What is he saying? Manna is a picture of God's word. Manna to manna is to us physically what God's word is to us spiritually. I must learn how to think out the implications of God's word into my daily life. Uh, Easter weekend, last weekend, I, one of the statements that I made is because he lives, I can have a pleasure or a joy based, uh, not based on my circumstances. How many remember that point that I made last week? Okay, That's not very encouraging. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and preach it all right now. Okay, I'm going to go. There's like four of you. Okay. Okay, let me, let me remind you, okay, let me re remind you, I, I said this, I said, because he lives, I made four points, and the one of the points was, because he lives, I can have a pleasure or a joy not based on circumstances, and then I defined joy, joy was, uh, was a buoyancy based on the pleasure we find in the eternal privileges or promises we have in God, that life can push you down, it can't keep you down, why? Because you keep coming to the surface of your life because there's a joy. The opposite of joy is not sadness, 
but it's hopelessness and despair. You don't have to live with hopelessness and despair. You're going to have sadness in your life, but you don't have to have despair. You don't have to be hopeless because of the joy that we have in him. And it's the pleasure you find in the eternal privileges and promises we have in Christ Jesus. It brings us back to the surface. And one of the promises that I shared with you was a kind of a promise that covers all promises. It was Romans 8, 31 and 32. You remember that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Listen to me. He took care of your worst problem. All that's saying he's going to take care of all of your problems. If he, if he didn't spare his own son to take care of your worst problem, which was eternal separation from him, so he's reconciled you to him, that's what it's saying. I'm going to take care of all of your problems. So what you've got to do is you've got to get the manna. You've got to think out the implications and go, wait, 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 wait. Okay, he took care of my worst problem. I'm reconciled to God. I'm a child of God. He's lavishing me with his love. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Okay, what would that look like in my life now considering my circumstances? I shouldn't be freaking out like I am. And in fact, I should be more courageous than I've ever been. But I don't actually believe that. Lord, help me believe that. Make that alive in my heart. So what are you doing? You're eating and taking that manna into your life. You're digesting it. You're making it a part of you. And you're praying, God, make it alive. Help me to understand that. Let me live in the reality of that. Does that make sense? Okay. I mean, we've got to do that. If I really believe this, how would I feel and behave considering my current circumstances? Here's the second one. Enjoy daily intimacy with Christ. So I got to get the manna every day. Believe me, man, I go after the manna every morning. I'll spend hours. I'll spend all day. I spent today on getting manna just for me, just for me, just so that I could interact with him and know him. And here's the next one. Enjoy daily intimacy with him. Exodus 16, 4, go out and gather a, a day's portion every day. Matthew 6, 11, in... Um, when Jesus was teaching us the Lord's Prayer, taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, there, part of that, he says, give us today our daily bread, yes. And so I, I believe that he was talking about this. Don't just go to God for your needs, but go to God as the one you need. There's a major difference. You need to have an encounter with God. Imagine you're out driving you're out driving around and you're hopelessly lost and you find someone and you roll down the window and you say, hey, can you uh, tell me how to get to this place? This is obviously a, a, a gal, not a guy, because guys would never ask for, uh, for directions. And so, uh, can you tell me how to get to this place? And the guy says, wow, you really are lost and it's going to be nearly impossible to get there from here. Even if I told you, you'd forget. So he says, how about I get in the car with you and I take you there. That's what we need more than anything. It's not abstract information, but authentic intimacy with Christ that we need most. There should be this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between us and our Savior. And he's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to empower you. He's with you. Here's the next one we need, number three, is fellowship with people who stir your heart for Christ. And I mentioned this as we were walking through our text, so they uh, though the manna was gathered individually, it was distributed in community. We see that in Exodus 16, 16 through 18. Listen to me. You're not going to survive in the desert unless you're willing to get involved in deep community. We call them life groups here. 
It's got to be more than what we do here on weekend services. You need to sit across the table from a few folks and be able to share your heart, bear your soul, and they do the same, and you encourage one another. You know you got people in your corner cheering you on and helping you and assisting you, and you need to do the same for them. That's going out and getting the manna. So desert adversity, show us God's redeeming process, provision, and then here's the last one, patience. Shows us his patience. Desert adversities are father filtered not to punish but to purify. I don't know how many times I have people say, is God punishing me? Are you a Christian? Yes. No, he's not punishing you. He put all the punishment for you on Jesus. He he took care of all of our punishment. He's purifying us. So Exodus 16, 4 He tells us it's a test, verse 27. They fail the test, verse 35. God continues to feed them for 40 years in the desert. uh, When I went through uh, Phoenix Fire Department medic training, they took us out of the field for six months. It was like a crash course. It was like two years of college uh, crammed into six months. It was pretty intense, most intense course I've ever gone through. And I was going through with about 12 other guys and... um, I had a couple buddies in there, and you had to maintain like an 85% in the class uh, so that you wouldn't get washed out of the class. Well, these two guys uh, were getting just a little bit below 85%. I said, ah, you're close enough. It's not that big of a deal. They're not going to wash you out. They've already invested too much time and money in you. They're not going to, it's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. Just, just keep trying harder and, and all that. And, and guess what? They washed them out, okay? I was, I was wrong, and, and those guys got booted out of the class, both of them. And here's my point is that educational tests are meant to qualify or disqualify. God's tests are never meant to disqualify, but only to qualify. He doesn't test us to disqualify us. He's testing us to qualify us. He's working. He loves you. He's your dad. He's not going to boot you out of the family. He's not going to kick you out. He's, he's going to lavish you with his love. In fact, his, his troubled kids, they're going to get more attention from dad, Okay. That's why I'm at the front of the class here, okay? That's right. The more a child struggles, the more the father gives of his attention, affection, and action to the child's success. Deuteronomy 131, listen to what he says here. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Deuteronomy 8.5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Because he loves you. Here's the next one. The more you grasp God's continual patience with you, the more you'll face desert adversities with peace and poise. And so you'll see that they're quarreling uh, with God. It means to bring legal charge against God. Moses and God are being accused of criminal negligence and manslaughter before the fact. The people are putting Moses and God on trial, blaming them for their terrible circumstances. I mean, with this level of blasphemy, you would expect God to say, you little insolent insects, get down on your knees and repent before I crush you into the ground. I mean, that's what I was thinking. That's what I would have done. But then I, would have, I started thinking, wait a minute, I'm one of those little insects. And, and so I didn't, I didn't like that, and, and God doesn't do that. In fact, it tells us in Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In fact, I gave you the definition for God's patience there. God's patience is not just putting up with us, bare tolerance, but it is serving and meeting the needs of his people who deserve to be disdained and rejected. 
The more you realize how little you deserve and how much you have received from God, the more you'll face desert adversities with peace and poise. If my perspective and sense of proportion are right, I would realize that anything I experience that is better than hell is a gift from God's mercy, okay? And, and that's a fact. I, I, there was another thing that I wrote down on some cards here that I found really helpful. I wrote it down here in my notes. If, if you are forgiven, reconciled to God, adopted into his family, empowered by his Holy Spirit, assured of being resurrected into unimaginable glory for all eternity, if God never did another thing for you, you should praise and serve him with everything you have for the rest of your life. Just for that. Just for that alone. But it shows you our sinfulness and we lose track of what he has for us. Why is God patient? Last point on your notes. Because Jesus is the rock who got what we deserve so that we would get what he deserves. Jesus got the cosmic I thirst on the cross, John 19, 28, so that we would have our souls satisfied in him. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, before you run out of here, I got some uh, DB news here to share with you. I got some quick news, just real quick. Um, Nancy and I have been involved in ministry for over 40 years, and uh, Desert Breeze celebrated 27 years this last Easter weekend. 27 years, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Praise God. Uh, I know, I know that for Nancy and I, this, uh, this is way beyond what we deserve or ever, ever dreamed could ever happen through a little church that started in our home 27 years ago. And uh, Good Friday and Easter combined, we had the largest crowd in the history of Desert Breeze. Isn't that crazy? So that's, that's fantastic, just this last weekend. We're the healthiest we've ever been as a church family. I, I really believe that. We, you guys are an awesome uh, group of people. We have an awesome family. We have awesome leaders. We have great people. You guys just are committed to Christ. It's evident through your generosity and giving of your time, your talent, your treasure. And uh, I say all that to say this, that uh, ministry has emotional highs and lows unlike other vocations. And my wife and I have been feeling in the last couple years a, li a little bit like uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. It says, outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Her and I are being renewed day by day, and yet we feel really worn out. We're really tired. And uh, after 40 years of ministry, we both are experiencing a lot of compassion fatigue. And uh, neither one of us has done the best job at pacing ourselves, and we both would like to go another 10 years or more, God willing, but don't have enough fuel in our tank. We're just being honest. So the elders have approved for us to take a sabbatical uh, for two years. Okay, just two months. I, I was trying to slide that one on you guys. Okay, not two years. It wasn't. I, th I thought. I thought I heard him say two years. I'm almost sure. Now, two months, two months, and it'll be this summer. My last Sunday will be uh, June 16th and the 17th, uh, and we're going to finish up Exodus. That's where we're headed. We'll finish up Exodus, and then Nancy and I will be back September, uh, the first weekend of September, which is one and second, and I'll. I'll do a teaching. We'll start probably through the book of James. But our pastoral staff is really, really excited about us leaving. <laughs> it's like, 
they really are not so much about us leaving, but they're excited because they're going to be stepping up. And they've been working on two summer series, and the first one is first responders dealing with our emotions, and the second one is captives of Christ. They're going to be working through the four uh, prison letters, and so the team that's going to be stepping in here for me is Ricky, Ryan, Josh, Phil, Scott, and Darren. And so... I'm excited for them. I think it'll be really good. Uh, the elders are looking at doing this for all the staff as soon as they have been here for 27 years. Okay, actually, they're looking at it. Uh, we, we should have done this much earlier, actually. After about seven years, we're noticing that most, most churches, after about seven to 10 years, they'll give their pastor a sabbatical. And uh, so I, I thank you for allowing us to be away. You're still stuck with me for at least a couple more months, okay? <laughs> and then... And then, uh, and then I'll, Nancy and I are going to be out of here for a couple months this summer just to get recharged. And I'm, I'm just praying. Uh, I'm praying that God will unload on you guys while we're gone. And you guys will experience a revival here. Unlike ever before. Amen. Praise God. We, we love you guys. We love you guys uh, like crazy. And so uh, that's it. Let me pray before I cry my eyes out here. So Father God, thank you for your liberating process, provision, and patience through our desert adversities. May you be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. In every circumstance, in every circumstance that we face in life, we pray in Jesus' glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys.